You're listening to the Science Line podcast. This is the sound of science. And then the television asks, what's the name of the act called? And in unison, the family says, the aristocrats. Oh. Neil, that's not funny. Well, okay, Becca, then what is funny? Hmm, you know, I'm actually not sure. Maybe we should find out what science tells us is funny. Then maybe you can finally learn how to tell a funny joke for once. Ha ha, hate everything. You can laugh. You can laugh, guys. It's like the clapping to the dying fairy. Your laughter brings us to life. Since the time of Freud, psychologists have studied humor and all of its nuances in an attempt to pinpoint the root of humor. There are an increasing number of psychologists these days trying to figure out what exactly makes something humorous. The field of study often runs through a slew of different types of questions. What is the sense of humor? What is the function of laughter? Does laughter have physical health benefits? What is the evolutionary function of humor? Perhaps, Neil, the most fascinating question is, what makes something funny? There are many different kinds of theories being bounced around in today's world. To get a better sense of all this, we talked to Rod Martin, a professor of psychology at the University of Western Ontario. There, there have been quite a number of different theories that have been proposed by philosophers and thinkers going back for centuries, all the way back to Aristotle. And uh, just about every you know, major philosopher has had something to say about humor and why is it that we laugh? What makes something funny? There are these different theories, and, and I, I would say that there are three main types of theories that have been proposed over the years. So the first one is the one that goes all the way back to Aristotle, and that is the idea that we laugh because we feel superior to other people. So this is called superiority theories of humor. And so the argument there is that whenever we're uh, you know, we're hearing a joke or anything funny happens that we laugh at, that there, in some way we're, we're perceiving somebody else as being more stupid than us or more ugly than us or uh, more slow-witted or whatever. And, uh, and, and the pleasure that we get out of humor is this pleasure of feeling superior to another person. And then another theory has to do with the idea of tension release. Humor always involves a kind of a buildup of psychological tension that then gets released in some way. And the best known example of this theory is the one proposed by Sigmund Freud. He talked a lot about unconscious drives that underlie everything that we do, and particularly the sexual drive and the drive for aggression. And so his theory was uh, that essentially jokes provide us with an opportunity to express these unconscious drives in a socially acceptable way. And this would be why uh, so many jokes have to do with sex and aggression. But also Freud talked about, um, you know, some forms of humor where the the humor is allowing us to basically get rid of other kinds of emotional tension. If we're feeling depressed or upset or anxious about something, and if we're able to find humor in the situation, find something funny in the the situation, uh, that allows us to release some of that emotional tension. And that's what gives us the pleasure. That's what the, the enjoyment of the, of the humor. 
Martin has described to us an example of humor research, a study he and his graduate student recently completed that explored incongruity resolution theory. Well, a number of the common theories that are widely accepted today by humor researchers have to do with the idea of incongruity. So the assumption is that whenever we're laughing at something, whenever we find something funny, it's because of the fact that there's incongruity in that, uh, in the joke or whatever it is. And incongruity uh, has to do with the idea that we're, we're seeing something as being unusual, out of the ordinary, surprising, unexpected in some way. And so any, any kind of joke, you know, when you're, you're hearing a joke and, and uh, you're listening to the setup of the joke, you have sort of an expectation about, you know, what's going on and you form a kind of uh, an image of it. And then when the punchline comes along, suddenly it turns out to be different than what you were expecting. And so that is the incongruity. But in incongruity resolution theory, what they're suggesting is that as we're listening to a joke, we're building up an expectation about how it will end. The punchline comes along and it turns out to be different than we were expecting. So that causes sort of puzzlement or surprise. And so then we have to go back over the joke and try to figure out, you know, how does this make sense? And we find that there's something in the joke that we kind of missed the first time through. And that's the resolution. Once we get that resolution, then it sort of makes sense. And then we find that to be funny. The one of the the major prediction of incongruity resolution theory is this assumption of surprise. So the idea that when you're listening to a joke, you're kind of predicting how the joke is going to end, and when it doesn't turn out to be the way you thought it would, you're surprised. And so the study that we did uh, was was to test this out. Is it the case? that the punchlines of jokes are actually surprising to people? Or is it possible that they're actually predictable? And another, another sort of hypothesis that we were looking at in this study as well is, uh, has to do with how quickly people get the joke and how that relates to the funniness of the joke. Um, so again, incongruity resolution theory and, and other theories as well uh, have predicted that it, jokes that take a sort of intermediate amount of time to to understand are going to be the funniest. If you can get a joke too quickly, it's not going to be funny. And if it takes too long to get the joke, it's not going to be funny either. What we did, it was quite simple. We got a, a large collection, a collection of about 100 jokes uh, that we just randomly selected from joke books, and we presented them to a number of participants on a computer screen, one by one. Now, some of the participants would get just the first part of each joke, just the setup of the joke, and not the punchline. And they were instructed to type in what they thought the punchline for that joke would be. Then afterwards, we rated how similar these predictions were to the actual punchlines of the jokes. For each joke, we had an average predictability score. 
And then other participants, uh, they were shown the whole joke, with including the punchline. And they were instructed, first of all, just read the joke, and then as soon as you get it, click on a button on the computer screen. And that was to, to measure how long it took people to, to get the joke. And then after that, they were instructed to simply rate how funny is this joke on a scale from zero to six, not at all funny to really funny. And so we were again able to get an average score for funniness for each joke and an average reaction time for each joke. And so then we simply looked at the correlations between these variables. So is there a, a relationship between how predictable the punchline is and how funny the joke is rated to be? And of course, again, incongruity resolution theory would say that the more predictable the punchline, the less funny the joke should be. But in fact, what we found was the exact opposite. So the more predictable the joke punchline, the funnier the joke turns out to be. So uh, jokes that have really unpredictable punchlines are actually not very funny. So this is really quite surprising from the point of view of uh, incongruity resolution theory, but it was actually the, the result that I was, um, I was expecting. And then in, in terms of uh, reaction time, we found that the faster people understood the joke, the funnier the joke was rated to be. If you could get the joke quickly, it's funnier. If it takes you longer to understand it, it's not as funny. So again, that was something that, that I was expecting, um, given sort of the way I, I think about uh, what makes a joke funny. Martin also has his own thoughts about how to make sense of this data, and he prefaces his explanation with a very funny joke. A woman rushes into her house and yells to her husband, Sam, pack your things. I just won the lottery. He says, should I pack for warm or cold weather? She says, I don't care as long as you're out of the house by tonight. <laughs> so in that joke, you, you're recognizing that there's two different ways of thinking about this. On the one hand, there's, you know, Sam who's thinking, oh, this is great. My wife won the lottery and we're going. And when she said, pack your things, that he thinks that she uh, uh, wants to take them with her. But then the other interpretation is pack your things means pack up and leave, and she really wants to get rid of him. And so we're suddenly recognizing that, oh, she uh, she doesn't love him anymore, and now that she's finally won the lottery, she's able to get rid of him. So there's these two kinds of alternative interpretations of the, of the joke that are, are kind of active in our mind at the same time. And the pleasure of humor, I think, is the just enjoying the incongruity, the two alternative explanations uh, at the same time. And so this is why the reason I think that in our study, we found that the more predictable the punchline, the funnier it is, is because I think that when we're listening to a joke, we're very actively looking for the incongruity in it. Incongruity resolution theory is basically assuming that people listen to jokes the same way that they 
listen to serious information or that people are sort of anticipating a kind of a serious ending to the joke. But I would argue that when we're listening to a joke, we know it's humor. We know it's going to be funny. And we're actively looking for some kind of incongruity. We're so so we're anticipating the incongruity right from the start. And so if the incongruity that if, if we're able to discover that incongruity quickly and easily, that makes it all the more enjoyable. It's like a like seeing it coming in advance is is sort of the fun of humor. <laughs> and actually, like a couple of years ago, some scientists uh, ran an experiment and they proved that the scent of a woman's tears, you know about this experiment, <laughs> causes a man to lose his erection, <laughs> which I could have told you in 1999. David Zomer is a project manager at SPH Sciences a biomedical research company. He did his graduate thesis on human research at Hunter College, and here's what he had to say. In general, my, my personal interest kind of went into the more evolutionary reasons. You know, why did it evolve? Where did it evolve from? Why did it serve as an advantage? Because why was it passed down as a behavior? What's interesting about humor, though, is that it's very influenced by culture. I mean, it, it changes. What people may have used music for 10,000 years ago might not be what people use it today. And I think it's the same for humor. Most of the evolutionary arguments that I got interested in tended to see things as, as humor as an aggressive use, to create an in-group, to exclude other people. But there's also some that it was a way of communicating that a threat had passed. You know, people laugh when they feel calm. And, but what's, what's really interesting about humor is how it evolves over the course of someone's life. Because, you know, the function it might have, you know, between a parent and a child is different between, let's say, two mature adults and what they laugh about. But it's really complicated why people laugh. In general, I found studying humor, it's a very complicated behavior. It's difficult to find an agreement of what humor is, what is humor behavior, what exactly are we talking about? And even when people laugh, I mean, what, what are they laughing about? And people laugh at, at, at different things. You know, some people, you know, they see someone fall or they, someone skateboarding and then they, they get hurt and it's hilarious. I, I, I generally don't tend to laugh at that humor unless it's like just over the top. But some people, that, that it's, it's really funny to them. I felt that studying humor, it did not make me a funnier person. That's one thing I really learned. I think I'm still trying to regain my sense of humor. You're using a different part of your brain that's almost not humorous. Uh, six foot two and looking like Saddam Hussein in Paisley pajamas. And he starts screaming, stupid, why am I kid so stupid? You know, and it's like, whoa, you know, even for my screaming loud family, this is, this is, a, little, this is a little more than usual. So does all this research mean anything for people whose job it is to be funny? We spoke to Bob Mankoff, the cartoon editor for The New Yorker, to get his perspective on humor theory and research. There are many things that make people laugh. The question is, are those things, you know, both necessary and sufficient? You know, if I go, boo, you just laugh. Okay? You just laugh. Both of you laugh, right? So clearly, probably the most primal mechanism is surprise. David Yearn has written a book called Sweet Anticipation. It's actually all about music. And, but he talks about surprise. And that surprise can, first of all, is always bad for an organism. It is always bad to be surprised. The initial reaction, your initial reaction to that was negative. Something bad, something unexpected happened. 
From an evolutionary standpoint, if something unexpected happens, you should always think the worst first. And then when it's followed by something trivial, usually that does make people laugh. And so because laughter itself uh, is a breathing response, a quick intake of oxygen. In the surprise that brings awe, you intake. Also when you're afraid. It's in the exhale. One of the interesting, Robert Provine wrote a book about laughter, and laughter, like speech, is always in the exhale. Ha, ha, ha. Chimps laugh in and out. <laughs> you know, they, they pant. So to me, clearly, you, you know, you have to look beyond joke. You have to go far back to try to find out what's the function of it. Before jokes, before comedy, before that, jokes are the pornography of humor. Jokes are the thing that take everything out so that then it makes you switch your narrative. We also spoke with Ryan Hansinger, a stand-up comic from Los Angeles, to get a sense of what a comedian might think about humor research. You know, that, I think people like the unusual. I think that's the kind of stuff that stands out a lot. You know, when you look at characters and comedy and stuff, it's that relatable person in unusual circumstances and, and how people react that really makes things funny. He comes in and uh, he comes right up to my bedside and he's like, how are you? And uh, I look up at him and I am on so much morphine. I'm like a rag doll and I fart. (laughs) It's so loud. (laughs) What what, what can I do? I'm not in control. I'm just me. Nancy's a farmer walking in a field with a pig, and the pig has a wooden leg. Now, I'm going to deconstruct this for you. This is already a problem for you. So you don't know where I'm going. Are you going to get it? Are you going to... So tension is building up. So I'll, I'll kill the joke a little bit, but I'll, I'll, I'll make it work. So the guy says, I've never seen a pig with a wooden leg. This is totally amazing. How come the pig has a wooden leg? The farmer said, you see that house up there on the hill? That's my house. That house was on fire. This pig, it was a pet pig, came up. He rescued my wife. Then he went all the way up. He rescued my two children, and then he got me. So, so the pig burned his leg off in the fire. So he, the farmer says, no, no, you don't eat a pig like that all at once. <laughs> okay, so all of a sudden, now, in, 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 that, little, in that little part... There's surprise because the narrative is switched. So when we look at it, now it's been called, if you talk to her, it's been called incongruity, bringing different things together. If I show you a picture of a knife with all corkscrews, well, that's weird. That's a Swiss Army knife. I usually expect it to have a lot, and that's got all corkscrews. Why? It's a French Army knife. Okay, so now you're bringing together those two frames of reference, and that's sort of what. But incongruity seems to me just too amorphous because sometimes when I said "boo" and you laughed, well, yeah, you could say it's incongruous that I all of a sudden. But but we wouldn't use that word normally. That seems like a strange word to use. Oh, you you incongruated me. You can have jokes that seem like they have very little incongruity but simply are dealing with some sort of conflict or weakness or foible in human beings. So if you have a couple, a snooty couple, this is a William Hamilton cartoon, and a couple, another couple, they've finished the evening, they've had dinner with each other, and the, and the woman is saying to the, to the other couple, oh yes, we know them, we hate them. Well, so there what we see is it's a surprise again, because we see we know them, and she says we hate them. 
And to me, it seems a little weird to say that's incongruous. Well, maybe it's incongruous. It seems it's really revealing the type of diminishment, degrading somewhat of an opinion, an opinion going from high to low. You've gone from, ooh, I'm surprised, which is this minor negative thing, to it's okay, and then you also get it. So at that moment, I think the basic mechanism is surprise, the very, very basic mechanism. But at the, if at the same time I surprise you, in, or in that way, by switching a narrative, you also understand something. You get something. Uh, someone you don't like is diminished. A truth is explicated through humor. Primates have a sort of a homologue of humor, of running around, chasing each other, play fighting. But it's not comedy. And that's an important distinction I sort of make between comedy, which is an art form, and humor, which is... Uh, which is one of the ways that we constantly deal with conflict, essentially through this breathing response. I think in creative minds, you don't necessarily want to be constrained or feel like you're working on somebody else's rule book. You kind of want to create your own funny, but it's, it's amazing how many times you go back and you look at why something's funny, and it is because of some of the scientific things. Like, I remember, like, even it happened recently. I was at an open mic working a joke and stuff. And I remember saying the word, Bert's bees got to laugh. Instead of just saying chapstick, the word Bert's bees got to laugh. And it's the alliteration behind it, I realized. I was like, ah, people like Bert's bees. BB is funny. I'm sure there's research out there where people are, are putting people into a room and taking notes on what makes people laugh and stuff. It's interesting because uh, as, as comics, we're doing it the same way every night in, in clubs and in theaters and stuff. You'll try something and you realize, like, I didn't work, but maybe if I try this other word there, it will. All humor is dependent on knowledge and context. Every humor, you're, you're going you're gonna to laugh that you're going to make jokes here. You're going to make in jokes dependent upon the station, your life, the people you know. So all humor depends on some knowledge. Now, sometimes the knowledge is universal. People fall down. Gravity, we know about that. All silent films are based on the fact that we're physical objects in space. Slapstick humor. So that's why it's very, very transferable. You don't have to have much knowledge to know that if you slip on a banana peel, <laughs> you're going to fall down. If you, if you completely translated a, a, a Jimmy Fallon monologue and, you know, you show it in the Ukraine, I don't think it's going to get very big laughs. So it's not, you know, people say they're New Yorker, like, oh, well, that, everything is that way. I don't think these theories are real theories. They're narrative explanations. They're, they're true, but what's the unified theory of behavior? What's the unified theory, or the unified theory of, of humor? You know, just the more you are acquainted with any literature, you will find that there's no, that, that these things are more ad hoc but sort of useful. You know, it's not like Einstein saying that nothing can go faster than the speed of light. I actually think the thing that often makes a joke that's offensive, benign, is because it's funny. The funniness itself. So let's say, let's say this, and we ran this in New York and it offended some people as two, two surgeons over a little child, and one surgeon is saying to the other, there's got to be an easier way to get candy from a baby. And there is no baby. Nothing exists at all. This is just joking. <laughs> for a lot of people. To be able to laugh at circumstances that aren't always ideal and find humor in that. I have another joke. Kind of finding like the silver lining in diseases like Alzheimer's and stuff. 
it's amazing when when people come up and they're like, man, I I know some like my grandfather had Alzheimer's, you know, and that's a really funny joke. It's kind of done in a way that makes them feel good about it and able to laugh at a bad situation. George Orwell said, jokes don't degrade us. They show that we are degraded, which means we're human beings, and we have to deal with all of our emotions. If, if it was all logical and we never had a bad thought, you know, that we felt everybody's harm and tribulations like our own, but we don't. We're in these situations, and I do think that these situations, these conflicted situations, lead to us expressing them with humor trying to somehow put ourselves in, in this space. Humor exposes phoniness, and we actually know that we're all phonies. We don't want, we're not bad people. It's just the nature of being human that when it doesn't happen to us, we actually have to separate ourselves from that. We can't grieve. We can't, I mean, old the theories about what humor is for by this guy McDougall who wrote something in the 20s was that it was actually to protect us from empathy to protect us from caring, because the world in its aggregate is such a a place of constant tragedy. Audiences are very, very different. So an audience that is all together will be, be, depending on whether they're packed tight, and so there's there's studies on this, how close together, how far. Gave a talk at South by Southwest, it was terrible. There were a thousand, it was a ballroom of a thousand people, they're scattered, okay? Lately, I've been going on this book tour, nice packed crowds of a couple of hundred right around you and stuff like that. You have the contagion of laughter. You have the tension that builds up in an audience itself that, that has to be quiet and only has one response, laughter. That's how you go, you go to see Louis C.K. Well, you paid money to see Louis C.K. You like Louis C.K. You're there. They are prepared to laugh. Let's say you're reading in the New Yorker, on an article, a serious article, and you're, on, and you're on, on the L train. Well, you're not necessarily prepared to laugh, and you're not going to laugh. Laughter is essentially social. You pack an audience, an audience is social. Laughter would be social. Here, it's social. You know what I mean? But, and also, so there's a power dynamic, too. If, I'm, if people are going to, to, to a book tour and they see me, they've come to see me, they like me, and everything like that, and I'm more, and I'm more important than them at that moment, you know? Uh, uh, uh. The, I made a joke when I was to South by Southwest to someone and said, well, the lines are terrible, right? Yeah, and I, and I said, and also I feel so un- unimportant standing alone. So, 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 so that's, the, the, you know, that's the dynamic. When you're sitting in your living room, you're the important one. You, you or friend, the spouse, whatever, this cartoon stinks. You don't, and, you're, and it's not social. So also, you're in, in the New Yorker, you're, you're an essentially, you're, you're not in a play environment. So it's a little weird thing. You're, you're going from serious to play, serious to play. So you're not likely to have any, in a stand-up routine, you're, gonna get, you're, gonna, you're building joke on joke on joke on joke. You can't do that in the magazine. So power is very important. So whoever your boss is here, or your teacher, or whatever it is, that your teacher doesn't have to tell much of a joke to get you to laugh. Okay, class, let's start. Um, how many of you did the reading for today? All right, good. <laughs> you end up being addicted to it, to that laughter. It's just some, a rush, almost like have control over a room. 
part of being funny uh, in just a social situation is the ability to interrupt. Because most of the conversation in it will be serious. The default condition in life is we're dealing with things. You know what I mean? It's not constantly funny. Often to be funny, you have to interrupt. You have to change the narrative. So that often requires certain power. Uh, and of course, the person at the top, you know, whatever your situation is here, whoever the most important person, if you're having a serious meeting, they at any time can change that and say something funny. But for you all of a sudden to do it, you know what I mean? That joke better be pretty good. Here, this is where I think research and everything else is interesting and important. To me, I, this whole holy grail of what are the necessary and sufficient conditions when there's so much knowledge to be had that surrounding everything that is uh, uh, essentially refined common sense. So that when I say there's no formulas of necessary, but it does inform you, and I think it, I think it makes humor more interesting you know, rather than, uh, you know, the E.B. White quote of, you know, analyzing humor is like dissecting a frog. Nobody's much interested in the frog dies. We can see that humor research, at least as a data-supported field of study, is still in its infancy. There's still a lot of variables that need to be accounted for, and it's pretty unlikely we'll ever find a humor theory that can completely define what humor is and what makes something funny. Still, it's certainly not a question that keeps people up at night. More likely, they're staying up just for the sheer enjoyment of laughter and humor. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by ScienceLine.org. Thanks for listening.